Welcome to the Lehigh at Nasdaq Center podcast. In this series, Women in Technology and Innovation, we shine a spotlight on the remarkable female entrepreneurs, business leaders, and technology leaders who are changing the way we live and work, and also paving new paths for female entrepreneurs and gender equality. I'm your host, Samantha Wallravens. Today's episode features Aime Lapik, Chief Digital and Marketing Officer at GoPro, we will be discussing Amy's leadership style and what she has learned as a senior executive at multiple innovative technology companies. She shares insights about how to communicate effectively using data and why empathy is so important for marketing leaders. Amy also discusses the importance of a diversity and inclusion and how she measures it. So I want to start today by talking about the role of the chief marketing officer. Last week, we talked about the product manager, product lead role. So you've held this position at Banana Republic, at Pandora, and now GoPro. What is the role of the CMO, chief marketing officer, and how has this role evolved over time as you've crossed industries from retail, Banana Republic, to technology? So I think of the role as the chief marketing officer as truly the voice of the customer. So thinking about how do you represent both who the customers are, where they are located, how do you find them, how do you wow them, et cetera. So that's kind of how I think about my job. What that actually means is I have a team of folks who focus on analytics. So they measure results of campaigns. They think about kind of where the customer is in the journey, as we call it, customer journey from the beginning of acquiring a customer all the way to retaining them and having them buy more products and services from you. I have a folk, a group of people who do creative campaigns. So they literally create phenomenal creative either through email marketing or TV ads or the website, um, kind of a whole bunch of different touch points. I have a team of folks who focus just on influencer marketing. So at GoPro, a lot of the marketing we do is through athletes. So our athlete partners, our brand ambassadors, we literally enable them to use our cameras and tell their stories and share with their audiences, et cetera. And that's a whole team that does that work. And as I'm sure everyone on this call knows, social media is alive and well across the board. And it's a big piece of the marketing mix as well. And so there is a whole component to marketing and being a chief marketing officer that, that thinks about social media and what is the role of social media in either building your brand or introducing a new product or teaching customers just how to use your product. That's kind of a snapshot of what I do. And really my job is to figure out kind of who do we want to target as customers and how do we think about bringing them into our product or service? And then how do we keep them hopefully forever, but at least at least for three to five years, that's kind of typical as lifetime value of a customer. And I've done this for a long time, for close to a decade. And I would say... In the beginning, when I first became the head of marketing, it was all about phenomenal creative and great brand campaigns. And how do you build your brand into a household name? So that was the role at Banana Republic, is how do you make Banana Republic the place everyone wants to buy their clothes and kind of give them a feeling that they, um, they're they you know better versions of themselves when they wear Banana Republic clothes, for, for better or for worse. And you know, that was kind of what marketers did until we had more sophisticated tools. So, you know, along with e-commerce and email and SMS messaging and apps and in-app messaging, et cetera, there were way more sophisticated ways 
to talk to customers and tell the story. And it mattered how well those different kind of campaigns performed, especially when you're talking about spending millions of dollars against different kinds of campaigns and different kinds of strategies. And so the chief marketing officer had to be much more analytical than creative. And it's had to, that kind of blend of analytical and creative has evolved even now. And I would say a chief marketing officer has to think about marketing as a way to drive a total business and how to be strategic about it and how to be analytical about it and how to kind of continue to keep the customer first. Who are you focusing on at GoPro and, and what does this delightful experience look like? We think about our customers as, as, as an active capture. So literally someone who is actively capturing moments, usually very special moments in their life that they want to remember and treasure forever. And there are four different versions of of that customer. So there are four different customer segments. And I'll just give you an example of one. One is we have like super sports enthusiasts, people who like to participate in, in extreme sports. They're amazing skiers or surfers or mountain bikers, and they want to record their moments because they want to relive them. It's an incredibly important thing for them in terms of their lives. They're very passionate about it and they want to relive those moments, capture them, share them with like-minded people in their community, friends and family, et cetera. And so the GoPro kind of fits their needs. It's versatile, it's durable, it can go anywhere. So it's terrific for them. And then on the other spectrum, there are people who literally are more artists They think about photography and videography as a way to express themselves. And they may be vloggers. They may may think about like literally creating videos to share or to sell, et cetera. GoPro has lots of mounts and accessories and media mods that really helps that customer achieve the artistry in their videography that they want to. So those are very different types of people but the GoPro kind of fits each of their needs. We have been very successful as a company. This is actually our 20th year. So 20 years of GoPro. We've been very successful over the last 20 years because we have thought about like, what's the best camera that fits the needs of this whole group and can be versatile enough to fit their needs. And this year, we're actually introducing multiple cameras that may fit the needs of each of the different types of customer cohorts a little bit more precisely. And so that that's a big strategy shift for GoPro. And, and it is being driven by the customer and what the customer has told us they need the camera for. Let's talk a little bit about your career path. So you were an English major in college. You spent some time consulting at McKinsey, and then you went back to business school. And now you're in the technology world. So tell us about this path that you've taken and some of the choices you've made to get you to where you are today? I did not really know what I wanted to be when I was in college. I've made a lot of choices along the way that have really resulted in where I am today. And I would say they have all been good choices. They weren't necessarily purposeful to getting me in the C-suite, but my main message is don't feel like you have to have it all figured out right now because you absolutely don't. So English major in college, when I was in college, I loved to read, I loved to communicate, I loved to write. And so it was a great fit for me. I did not know what that then was going to lead to. I thought I was going to law school, decided at the last minute I didn't want to go. And so I did this new thing called consulting. It was a great entree into business. I worked across 12 different industries in three years. I learned a lot about business and a lot about customers and about different customers in cosmetics or in shipping or in travel, or I mean, just all kinds of different different industries. And 
the, the main thing I then decided is I like this business thing. It's interesting to me. It's appealing to me, but I didn't have a background in finance or accounting. I had never really taken those classes when I was at Princeton. And so I needed to go back to business school in order to become a business person. I liked an aspect of marketing. I didn't know I liked marketing at the time, but I liked thinking about customer problems and how to solve them, business solutions. And that's what consulting taught me. So when I went to business school, I tried to take a lot of different types of classes. I most gravitated towards marketing type classes, which were about customer and about thinking about how you surprise and delight customers through different solutions. I went back into consulting uh, because it was a, a good foray into learning about lots of different industries, but I didn't stay long. I did that for about a year. And then, you know, honestly, the the time was right and, and the internet was really booming at the time. And so I left for a very risky little startup and decided that was a great way to like get my feet wet as a real marketing person where I was responsible for real marketing problems. Um, and that company failed in about a year and a half. And so I went to work for another company and then I went to work for a third company. And so each of these things taught me a lot about what to do and, and sometimes what to not do in business. That's an equally important lesson. And I ended up landing at the gap. And I would say it was a phenomenal decision for me. It was probably one of the best career moves I've ever made. I made that career move because I was really interested in how do, how do you take what I had been learning about, which was e-commerce, um, and, and honestly, a lot about CRM, customer relationship marketing, and bring it to a, a brand and a company I loved. And so my very first job at The Gap, I ran CRM or customer relationship marketing for Banana Republic, which at the time was their credit card business. And I stayed at The Gap almost 14 years. And the choices I made were all about what was most interesting to me, married with where could I really learn a lot? So I took a lot of risk. I went to work for the outlet business and I got to start a brand new marketing team. I got to prove that marketing made a difference. I eventually ran the international business for outlet and significantly grew it. And then my last job at The Gap, I held this joint position of running e-commerce or bananarepublic.com as a business as well as being the chief marketing officer. And that was terrific because I could take everything I had done in marketing and apply it to driving and running a business. I left the gap after 14 years because I wanted to, again, push myself into an uncomfortable territory. And I, I went to work for Pandora. I had never worked for an app-based company and I had never run subscriptions before. And so I went to run their subscription business, Pandora Premium, and be the CMO. And that was phenomenal. It was such a fun experience. I loved working in the music industry. It matters where you work, honestly. I was surrounded by like-minded people. It's a very diverse culture. I wanted to stay, but unfortunately we were bought by SiriusXM and my job pretty much shifted to New York and my kids were pretty much in the Bay Area. So I was not moving to New York. And, um, but I loved everything I learned there. And so when the job at GoPro came along of being able to really run the e-commerce business for GoPro and run the subscription business for GoPro, it seemed like a really natural fit. And it's been a great choice, mostly because those businesses were very in their infancy stage when I started. And we've invested and grown them three times the size um, since I started. And so it's been a a really terrific experience to be able to do that for GoPro. Well, it's interesting that your job is so entrepreneurial, even within these big companies. It sounds like you made your role has been very startup focused. I have had jobs within these small areas of companies and been able to 
make the case, to invest in them, to grow them. Um, and it, it's been really rewarding. COVID is taking its toll on women. So one in three women are considering leaving the workforce or downshifting their careers. I wanted to ask you as a woman in a leadership position, why is this happening? And what have you done in your life, in your career to stop this leakage, to stick with it and to keep your team sticking with it? It is not insignificant what has happened over the last two years, especially to women. I have seen it firsthand in terms of women leaving the company because they needed to take care of their young children and there was no childcare available. There's a woman who has worked at this, her third company working with me who can't work full-time because she can no longer have an au pair in the country taking care of her kids. So she ha- she's taking care of them when they're out of school. And during the work- school day, she's working part-time for me. So I have seen people have to materially scale back. For me personally, the first six months were incredibly difficult. My youngest at the time was too young to really do Zoom by herself and to really do all the schoolwork by herself. And so I was literally scheduling hours that I could help her and hours that I could take meetings. And that was a real juggle. I mean, it, it was not easy. Things have gotten progressively better. So I would say, you know, starting last fall, not this fall, but last fall, when the kids actually could go to school, at least for a few hours a day in person, it made a material difference for me in my, my work day. Um, and it's gotten increasingly better, but I have just learned how to create hacks, if you will. That's what I call it, life hacks. And, you know, frankly, even before the pandemic, as a working mom, I had to create a whole bunch of life hacks to make working full-time, especially kind of as I progressed in my career, manageable with having three kids. And I have always thought about each day is a discrete choice. So I don't have to make the choice today that I'm going to work or not work. I have to make the choice today of how I'm going to spend each of my hours. And if my kids are getting home at two o'clock because it's an early release day, I need to block from two to three for them to get them back into the home, transition them into what they're doing next. I can't work during that time, but that doesn't mean I can't work after they go to bed, or it doesn't mean I can't work when they're doing their homework or it doesn't make. So I've just really thought about from the very beginning after I had children is like, try to treat it in short time periods, as opposed to big monumental decisions all at the same time. And, and I've been frankly, very lucky. I've been able to have help. I have a nanny who continues to work with me through thick and thin and she's been amazing. She, she only worked part-time now, but she's been terrific. And, you know, frankly, I, also have been able to rely on friends and neighbors and, and, and lots of people to help me along the way. And I, I think that's the thing about, you know, women is that we're okay asking for help sometimes, and we should be okay asking for help. So how I've tried to treat my, my people or my, my team is I am very conscious of like you, sometimes people are going to have to make different choices, right? So even before the pandemic, if someone, you know, I prioritize the person and the work over where they were. So I've always allowed people to work at least part-time remotely if the company would allow it. And, and that made, that's made a material difference, um, especially as people went on maternity leave and came back from maternity leave. Um, and, and people have been more loyal because of that. And I think it's incredibly important for companies to think about people as individuals and not as like, we need a one size fits all for people. And you're right. that It's not just COVID. There's something Shelly Carell at Stanford coined as the maternal, maternal bias where women are penalized for 
taking off when they have children and they're, they, they face a lot of biases at work. If they have to leave early to pick up children. Now it's sort of shifting with COVID because yeah. everyone's more flexible. Workplaces are more flexible, but curious what kind of biases you faced in your career as a woman and how, what did they look like and how did you navigate them? From the beginning, I have always worked for predominantly male companies, except with one exception and within one brand at the gap. And and so, especially in consulting, and then especially as I've got progressed in my career, I'm usually one of, you know, either the one woman in the room or at the table or one of a couple. And I would say it puts a big onus on communicating effectively. So it's important to be clear about your point of view, back it up with data and fact versus kind of your point of view backed up with emotion. And there is a bias that women are more emotional than men. And that's a negative thing in the workplace. And so it's not that you have to not be emotional because that, that's not, you need to be you. That's really important, but you need to be very clear about the message you're trying to communicate at any given time. I would say that's super important. And, you know, data is your friend. I've worked with very strong CEOs and CFOs that are, that are men who tend to out talk you or out explain you or try to over explain around you. And I just stick to the facts and the data. And that has been a winning combination for me so far. That women often take on in the workplace, they take on responsibilities that are not paid. One of them being the diversity, equity, inclusion work. And as a result, they are, they're not compensated. They're not promoted for these positions, but they're spending a lot of time doing this unpaid work. So what is your experience with office housework, as they call it? And how do you avoid it? Sometimes you don't want to avoid it because it's a, it's an area of passion for you. So uh, the diversity and inclusion area is a good example where I am on the council. I'm, I'm one of the leaders of our diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging focus at, at GoPro. And it's, it's definitely not paid. <laughs> it's, it's definitely not, you know, it, I mean, it's recognized, but it's not like, oh, great. Amy's doing this. So therefore she needs a promotion, but it is an area that I care a lot about. And so I make the time in other jobs I have been asked to take on. So, uh, you know, at McKinsey, I was asked to take on a lot of recruiting for analysts. Um, and that was, it became a second full-time job where I had to fly to different schools. I had to you know, present to different schools. And I, and I was asked to go, frankly, because I was a woman, I was one of the few women in my class at the time. And so it was great to say, we have someone like you (laughs) come join us. And that was a ton of work and it was not appreciated, you know, in terms of financially, but I, at the time felt trapped that I had to do that. And so it, I don't know if it was really a a part of my conscious decision to leave, but it definitely didn't help me want to stay at McKinsey. And there are other examples where I have to balance what I care about and helping people. Of course, you want to help people and you want to help foster the right kind of culture with how much you can take on. And so one of the things I've tried to do is ask more junior people to help me lead things. Like how do I partner with people who want the exposure and experience, but I don't want to overload them with too much work either. And so bringing in a couple of people to work as a committee versus like one or two people has also been a a way to really share the work, but also kind of share the exposure, which a lot of people want early in their careers. Can you talk a bit about what GoPro is doing and what this means to both the organization and also to you? Absolutely. So GoPro is very committed to creating 
not just a culture of diversity, equity, belonging, and inclusion, but also like th- rethinking our market position. How do we appeal to more diverse customers, frankly? Um, so GoPro itself is a, is, you know, I joined about two years ago. It's a very male-oriented company, both in terms of the employee base and in terms of the customers generally. And so over the last couple of years, there has been a huge effort to pledge to bring more diversity in everything from recruiting practices to equity training practices to you know awareness conversations. And that, that is all being driven by not just the CEO, but a senior group of people who are leading this diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging council. And the first thing we did is benchmark where are we relative to the rest of outdoor companies um, up within our peers, Kind of how do we rank in terms of the number of people we're bringing in as, as in terms of new recruits? How do we rank in terms of the number of people featured in our marketing, et cetera? That in and of itself is a big effort to figure out where you are and then to set realistic goals of where you want to be. So we have been very focused on what they say in business is what gets measured gets managed. So we've been focused on setting key performance indicators, KPIs in those areas so we can track how well we're doing. And it's a very important thing for the company, as well as, you know, just a personal thing for me. And I saw that uh, GoPro signed a diversity pledge, I think it was last year, with the goal to ensure that no group of people goes underrepresented. So and it's interesting to hear you talking about the metrics, because it's important to measure the results. How do you measure inclusion? That's always been one of my big questions. You can measure diversity, number of people of color, different backgrounds, ages. How do you measure inclusion or don't you? It's super hard. One of the things we are doing as a company is we take surveys three times a year to measure how valued they feel at the company, what their feedback on how they're doing, their engagement with the company, et cetera. And then we actually cut that data by type of person. As far as we can tell, like not everybody itself identifies or not. We look at it in a variety of different ways to see if there are any pocket of employees that are not feeling as engaged as other employees. And it may be, I'm going to pick on my O team, it may be the marketing and analytics team doesn't feel included. But it also might be our Asian American population doesn't feel in- included. It might be that our office in India doesn't feel included. And so we look at it a variety of different ways just to see if engagement is different by type of. We also just have open ended surveys. We do virtual brown bags now to kind of just talk and see, take the barometer of how people are feeling and what's happening and kind of areas of we call them opportunity, but like what do we need to fit basically to create a, more of a culture of inclusion? The question or the topic of intersectionality is. A big one today. We talk about the strides made by women and women are making progress. We have more women leaders. We have more women on boards. However, when we talk about these strides, we are often referring to white women and women of color are still finding it really hard to advance into leadership roles, to get venture capital financing for startups. They're dropping out of technology jobs in greater numbers than white women. They face greater biases at work. They're doing a greater share of the unpaid labor, the DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion work. So how do we resolve these issues and create workspaces that are inclusive and supportive of women and especially women of color? I honestly think we have to make that the priority. It can't just be a generic diversity goal because we, we will get what we have basically. Um, So we have to make the priority, how do we get more true diversity across the board? And we have to create easy ways to recruit people, to onboard people, to include them. And it initially starts with recruiting. Make sure your pool of applicants is well-represented 
make sure you have enough people of variety of backgrounds. So if the if the goal is to hire more African-American women, make sure you have a lot of African-American female applicants. And that is actually a, a tall task in some industries, but it can be done as long as it's focused on. And so that it starts there. And then it starts with who's on the interview panel. How open-minded are those people? What do they look like? People generally want to join companies where people look like them, like, and they feel like they'll have a, a, a real shot of, at advancing. So literally, how do you actually think about setting someone up for success from the very first interview? And then how do you onboard them so they get exposure, not only like to all facets of the company, and most importantly, to like where they can make a material difference, not in the diversity aspect, but in their opinion and their skill set, et cetera. Because the reason diversity is so important is that we learn from each other, right? And that no one group has all the answers. And so how do we think about like really sharing enough information so that people can understand how to do things differently and better and push themselves, et cetera. Diversity is the link to growth mindset, which is the link to successful company. Let's talk about your position. You have a board seat on a corporation called Cardlytic. There's been a real push in recent years to get more women onto corporate boards including mandates instituted by California and by the NASDAQ. So tell me why we need more women on boards, why we need more diversity on boards, and what was your goal or your intention in taking this position? Along with the now CEO, I was the second woman on the board of Cardlytic. We now have three. Cardlytics is a performance media company. It is basically the ability for companies like GoPro or companies like Banana Republic to target consumers, people like yourselves, who spend money at other competitors. So it's all through credit card information, credit card data. It's totally anonymous. It's not at the customer level, but the way it works is companies buy advertising that will focus on consumers that are more likely to spend at their company. And they were run by a lot of people with great financial backgrounds because they had worked at banks and these are working with banks, but their client is chief marketing officers or marketing folks. That's the people who spend advertising dollars. And so my initial goal was to come in and help them think about like, how do you appeal to people like me who have an advertising budget, who want to spend money to drive customers to at the time to Pandora or to Banana Republic. And my initial goal was how do I help them there? And then I quickly realized, wow, I have a lot to offer just in terms of my opinion as a woman, but also as a leader, as an operator, someone who's actually run a part of a business of a company. I'm not just an investor. I was the second independent board member. That's what they call folks like that to the table. And I have been able to really help them there. And then along with that, I've been able to help them. Cardlytics is very focused on continue to develop talent, equity, and belonging. It's been a big focus over the last two years for them. And they are doing all the right things in terms of like, how do you widen the recruitment pool? How do you think about onboarding? How do you think about career development? And so that's been terrific for me because I could add a lot very quickly as that has become a big focus of the companies. I have just personal experience in how do you do that? And so I felt like I could add a lot of value there. What are your thoughts on mandates requiring board diversity? Do you think this is necessary? It's companies aren't going to do it themselves. So they, you know, this is, it's, it's, is moving the needle. But what are your thoughts on that? I think it's absolutely necessary. I don't think companies would do it themselves because they haven't. There's so few women on boards until there was 
until this mandate came down. And it's amazing. Companies are responding. I actually, just over the last several months, as California has put in its new practices, I've gotten so many more kind of requests to interview for a second board seat, et cetera, which is great, but I'm one of many women. And so hopefully that means other women are now being actively recruited in a way that they weren't before as well. We bring a different opinion to the table, but in general, women are more empathetic. And so they can really think about things in a different way, which makes them very empathetic to customers. It makes them understand kind of what customer problems and opportunities might be, which helps solve the customer problems through different ways of how do you market more effectively or create a better customer experience on the website or or potentially appeal to customers with a different message. Same thing is true of, of how we think about employees. Like how do you think about what real career development looks like for your employees? you have to get in the head of that employee. It's going to be very different for each employee. And I think that that's what women can bring to the board as well. It's like, how do you empathetically think about solving those, the customer problems that that company is facing, as well as the employee problems that that company is generally facing? We just bring a different point of view. And we're great at asking a lot of good questions that make people think about things in a different way. And so I just ask questions, things that they're seeing to just make spur the thought and the debate a little bit more because there usually is not one single solution to any one problem. Thank you for joining the Lehigh at Nasdaq Center podcast. The Lehigh at Nasdaq Center is a collaboration between Lehigh University and the Nasdaq Entrepreneurial Center. Our mission is to educate, connect, and inspire the next generation of global entrepreneurial leaders. To learn more about us, go to nasdaqcenter.lehigh.edu. And follow us on Instagram. We are at Lehigh NASDAQ Center. If you enjoyed today's conversation with Amy, make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast content. Next week, I have the privilege of speaking with Amy Weaver, President and Chief Financial Officer at Salesforce, about her diverse executive experience.